today we're going to continue uh, in our uh, study of the, the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and the whole, we, last week, we considered the Holy Spirit as a person, that he is not a force to be wielded, but that he is God who should be worshipped, uh, that he is the shy one, if you will, the, as, uh, as it's been wisely said, he's the go-between God, uh, that we often don't think as much upon the Holy Spirit because every time we think upon the Spirit, he immediately redirects our attention to Jesus uh, because he's the Spirit who empowers witness uh, to make Jesus known. What I want us to be considering today uh, is the Holy Spirit uh, as we see him in the Old Testament. That the Old Testament uh, gives us, and the reason I didn't start with the Old Testament is because we have the full revelation through the person of Christ. It is Jesus who both brings to our understanding uh, the fatherhood of God as well as the spirit of God, uh, and, and brings the very personal reality, which is where we develop the whole doctrine of the Trinity, uh, that there is one God revealed in three distinct persons. But the full personality of the spirit is not clear from the Old Testament alone. Either is the fatherhood of God, actually. Uh, but we have what is considered an unfolding revelation of God through the scriptures. And Jesus, being the final word, it says, God, who has spoken to us at various times in various ways through the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us in his son. And so we begin to understand who God is through the incarnation, through the person of Christ. But we also understand who the spirit of God is through the incarnation and through the person of Christ, because Jesus said it's good that I go to my Father, for if I, go to the, if, if I go to the Father, then the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, he will come to you, and he will teach you, and he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And you remember the very words that he gives to the apostles uh, right before his ascension into the heavens. He says, go and wait for the promise Spirit. Go and wait in the Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you will become my witnesses. Um, to the ends of the world. But I do think it's important that we understand the spirit in the Old Testament is not different from the spirit in the New. And the work of the spirit in the Old Testament, uh, though it, there's a particularity uh, um, of, of work in the, in the Old Testament compared to the, to the opening up of the spirit's involvement in, in people's lives through the gospel, the same work is being done that the Spirit is a creator spirit, that the Spirit is an empowering, anointing spirit, that the Spirit is a prophetic spirit. And I want us to consider those, those realities today as we look at the trajectory of the scriptures around the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to um, begin, I don't know if you guys have ever read um, any of the works of the Canadian uh, philosopher Marshall McLuhan, uh, but he wrote a really famous book in 1969 called The Message is the Medium. Have you guys ever heard that phrase? And I think that one of his primary examples is that of a light bulb. The, the light bulb itself is both the message and the medium. And I actually think that, that, that this applies well to the message of God 
that you cannot separate the person of God from the message of God. You cannot separate the activity of God from the person of God. And so God's work, even even the message of God, ultimately ends up being the person of Jesus. And so the message is the medium, especially when we consider the role of the Spirit. The Spirit is not a force, but it is God's very active presence amongst his creation. That yes, God is distinct and separate from his world, but he is also imminent within it. That everything is sustained by his very presence. And the Old Testament has a phrase for that. It's the spirit of the Lord, or Ruach Adonai, the very breath of God, the wind of God, if you will. And so when we begin with this concept of creator spirit, Um, We have to begin even with the words of Jesus, for Jesus himself said in John chapter 6, verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The life is not something that is separate from the spirit, but it is the spirit's presence. The spirit, the message is the medium. It is the spirit himself animating, activating, empowering, bringing communion, awareness of self. It is the spirit who infuses us with life, and his life cannot be separated from him. In fact, the Holy Spirit is first and foremost the Lord of all life, never narrowly concerned with religion, touching all of us without exception, making us aware and awake and alive. The Spirit is the anonymous spark of recognition, the current of communion, of union, nodding to us, beckoning demanding our attention, the invisible and eternal go-between. And that's from John Stewart's The Go-Between God. And I just think, oh my gosh, this is so beautiful, such an incredible picture of the, of the Spirit as the Creator God, the Spirit as the Lord of life. So if we look, where do we find the first mention of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? Now, the words Holy Spirit are only used twice in the Old Testament, and we'll consider those at the end of the message. Uh, And and the the phrase that is utilized most common in the Old Testament is the Spirit of God. Uh, And where is that found? Page one, Genesis chapter one. We don't get too far into Genesis before the Spirit of God is mentioned. In fact, we get one verse in. Uh, Verses one and two, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. So there is this chaos, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. So here we have this dark space, and the world is declared as formless and void. And over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, there it is, was hovering over the face of the waters. They're the Ruach of God. Now, Ruach is that word. It's this, in, in Hebrew, Ruach, it means breath or wind. And in the New Testament, it's pneuma. And they have the same meaning. They both speak of, of wind and breath. And I think that this is interesting because it, we're dealing with a double analogy. Something in the physical world, the fierce wind of the desert and at the same time, the breath of a living creature, something that's unpredictable and violent and invading, and at the same time, something that is intimate and personal and present. 
And here we have the spirit, this wind that is actually, and in the Old Testament, I mean, in the, in the King James Version, it says the spirit was brooding. Um, I kind of prefer that actually over hovering. Uh, but hovering looks, uh, it's kind of drawing from that analogy uh, in Deuteronomy 33, in which uh, God's spirit is sort of described like an eagle that's hovering. Uh, and so you, you think of God's spirit, there's a, a, is this breath of God, this violent invading presence of God that is ready to act, ready to do what? To create. And you never see the spirit of God very often detached from the word of God. It shows the personal reality because in the next verse, in verse three, what does it say? God spoke. So the spirit of God is present in verse two, and he is a creator God. I think that what's fascinating is that the spirit hovering, what do you think Luke was thinking of as inspired by the spirit when he wrote in Luke chapter one, verse 35, talking about the angel's discussion with the Virgin Mary? What do we see there? The same creator spirit, and what are we told? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will what? overshadow you, that same reality, hovering over, ready to act, ready to create. Therefore, the child to be born will be called the Holy Son of God. I think there's a beautiful analogy, parallelism to those two passages, Jesus being the firstborn of a new creation. Uh, Looking back to Genesis chapter one, the spirit of God's activity, both in the creation of the world and the redemption of the world. And then you see, again, if you move forward in the Genesis account, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, here's where we begin to really see the personal reality of Ruach, where it moves from the impersonal, the wind, the violent invading of God's presence to truly a picture of the breath of God. You see, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life the Ruach of life. Now, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, Ruach is a, is a word, and if I was Tim, I'd really get that, that where you, it sounds phlegmy, but I just, I can't produce that Hebrew sound in my throat, where it's like, like, in fact, I would gross out every time he would say that. He's like, just, you know, create phlegm in your, I'm like, I don't want to create phlegm in my mouth. <laughs> but I love how he, he used that illustration that Ruach, the wind of God, is the breath of a living thing. It's something that cannot be seen, but it's something that can be felt. Uh, and here in Genesis 2-7, we see that God is breathing. Does God have physical lips? And we're told that God is spirit and must be worshiped in spirit, that no man has seen God at any time. So what do we have here? We have the spirit of God, the very presence of God animating humanity, making humanity in his image. And I I love it, this um, book that I read, The Go-Between God, the emphasis he makes in in the God is, uh, the spirit of God is the the go-between, as the creator spirit, um, is that what he creates is our ability to know and to be known that he is the spirit, and he, he utilizes that passage at the end of 2 Corinthians, that he is the spirit of fellowship, that he is the spirit of communion. 
And I think that that's a really beautiful picture, the uniqueness of, of how humanity is made apart. God speaks and the world breaks into existence, but with man, there's this intimacy, there's this, there's this image-bearing reality. And here we see this, this picture. And, and what's funny is in the scriptures, the, the difference between ruach, which is is breath or spirit always seems to have a supernatural reality that belongs to God and is on loan to man. And the word for life that the Hebrews most often use to describe human existence is nefesh, which is something that's very human. Uh, Ruach being the life-giving reality of God's very spirit who sustains us, never leaves us, even though the world is not aware of God and can say that I do not believe in God or I reject God, they, it requires the spirit of God infusing them, animating them, giving them existence. Their existence actually is in by the very power, by the very word of God, by the very spirit of God, and yet they do not recognize his presence. And there is the fundamental problem and the brokenness that enters into the Genesis account right out of the gate. Because between chapter 2 and chapter 6, in which God says, Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. I mean, it's not even going that well for us now, guys. I mean, what, like one? Who made, who, has anyone made it to 120 that you know of? Uh, I think there was like a woman that got really darn close recently. Uh, the, the amount of years that we live is not, is not what's important in this passage. What's important is that life, human life, requires the supernatural breath of God, and there's a point where it returns to God. And the brokenness um, is not the ability to live. The brokenness is in the ability to live in communion. Something happened between chapter 2 and chapter 6, and it's the, the something is called sin. And sin entered into the world. It didn't destroy human existence, but it infused human existence and the entire created order with death and with a blindness to the reality of God. This is why in Romans chapter 1, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness for what may be known of God, the Spirit of God that infuses all life with animation, God-given Spirit that actually allows for existence. The inability to see that it is God who has given us life as a gift is the direct, it directly corresponds to sin, the rebellion to recognize God as the rightful ruler of all that is, the refusal to submit to his lordship and in, the, in that rejection, in our desire to be gods for ourselves, we have become blind to the very one who created us. And it says that men stopped worshiping and serving the creator and began to worship and serve the creature instead. And we see that played out to its ugliest. I, we think of primitive worship of the, of the sun or the moon. My son right now, actually, it still happens because my son right now is with his friends and uh, and friend's family at the Oregon State Fair. And there's, I had to give him a list of things to not do at the Oregon State Fair. I'm like, don't do drugs. Keep your clothes on. Stay away from drum circles. Don't go near anything that uses the word spectral. And then I sent him a picture of a hippie wizard, and I said, and stay away from this guy. I do not trust him. <laughs> 
But I actually think the ugliest form of pagan worship is not the worship of nature, like the hippie druids at the Oregon State Fair. No, the ugliest form of pagan worship is the worship of self, the exaltation of the human ego that plays itself out, unfortunately, not only in the lives of those outside of the church, but often plays itself out in our own lives. And it's the reality of sin, and it's what breaks communion uh, with God. The Ruach of God was meant not only to give us life, but to give us communion. And communion is the essence of what the Holy Spirit comes to restore. Communion with God, communion with one another, and then and only then do we have rightful communion with ourselves. So what we have here is the Spirit is the creator. But sin has done something that's created um, a problem uh, within creation. But what we need to understand is that the Spirit is now a part of the redemption of creation. In fact, we're told in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, something very unique about the Spirit, about the Spirit's work in creation, that all of creation itself has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So, we're, so the Spirit comes within us and actually allows us to experience the brokenness and the pain of, of, of the world as it really is. We can actually identify the problem, but also creates within us the hope for a future, which is what the gospel provides. And not only do, does the world, does the universe groan, not only do we groan, but we're told actually just two verses down in verse 26 that the Spirit himself groans within us. People try to utilize that verse to define speaking in tongues. And although speaking in tongues is a part of the New Testament testimony, that particular verse, I think, has to do with the Spirit as the Creator Spirit actually actually groaning over the very brokenness of creation, but also the groaning of effort. Like, think of like weight. If you guys... How many of you guys like to weight lift? I just looking out there, I just see tons of bodybuilders. Uh, I can't see you very well, actually, the light shining in my face. Uh, I don't view Portland as a big bodybuilding city, uh, but, uh, but uh, the groaning uh, that, that comes. Uh, when I go to the gym, I, I, I love to work out by that guy, the guy that's like, oh, but it's like the, it's, it's the, the, the intensity that comes under the weight, the weight that they're trying to lift. Now, this kind of groaning is the labor of restoration, and I think that that's a really, it's a really powerful, uh, powerful reality. The continuous restoration and creation uh, of, uh, in, of the Spirit's work is something that we, as we become born again, that the Creator Spirit comes to us, into us, and it becomes our responsibility to recognize what the Creator, um, Redeemer is doing in the world and try to do it with Him. It's a powerful reality. So, the Spirit is creator in the Old Testament. He's still in the business of creating and recreating. If anyone be in Christ, he is what? A new creation. How is that work accomplished? By the Spirit of God who comes to dwell within us. So first and foremost in the Old Testament, we begin with the Spirit as the creator spirit. But then we also see the Spirit as the empowering spirit, the empowering or the anointing spirit. 
Uh, and that plays itself out in the book of Genesis as well. One of the, one of the places we, we first see the empowerment of the Spirit is actually in the person of, of Joseph. Uh, Joseph, remember, it was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he was godly. God was giving him visions at a young age. Unfortunately, in his youth, he didn't know how to, to share information carefully and told all his brothers that one day they're going to bow down and worship him. It was probably a bad call. I, I, it was like empowerment with a lack of discernment, uh, which people have accused me of. Uh, <laughs> and I, don't, I think if you have a lack of discernment, it's not really empowerment. Uh, but he ends up being sold into slavery by his, by his brothers, and he finds himself in Egypt and ultimately ends up in jail. But remember, he's able to interpret God is, God's presence. Every, he's blessed in everything he does because there's this unique anointing upon his life. And what is the anointing? It's not the force of God within him. We're not talking about Star Wars here. That is far more connected to Eastern thought than it is biblical ideas. We're talking about the actual personal presence of God upon his life. The message is the medium. And so the Spirit of God is with Joseph. In other words, Joseph is in communion with the living God, and it becomes evident to those around him. There's an anointing on his life, an empowerment. And because the presence of God, because he relied in total dependence upon Yahweh, he had wisdom and knowledge that, that far um, succeeded all those around him. And, and what does Pharaoh do? He brings them into his court. He says, is there anyone in Egypt that has wisdom or knowledge like this man? No. And he's blessed because he's empowered by the Spirit. I think we see, again, I, I love that um, with the, the person of Moses, obviously, as he is called to the burning bush and given a vision from God. And God says, I have chosen you to be the conduit by which I will set my people free. And he, what did he tell Moses? He said, he literally said that, that Egypt will view you as a God. And why was he saying that Moses was to be worshiped as a God? No, he was saying that my power will be so evident upon your life. My presence will be so manifest. You think about that time when Moses goes and spends time with God on Mount Sinai and what happens when he comes down. His face glowed with the glory of God to the point where it actually scared the people and they wanted him to cover his face because it made them feel like they were in the presence of God. This is that unique empowerment. If the creator spirit has a universal reality where all flesh owes its existence to God's very spirit sustaining and maintaining creation. The, the empowerment of the spirit has a particularity in which because of sin, God chooses particular people throughout the Old Testament narrative to, to, uh, and selects them for the purpose of bringing to remembrance his very presence and his creative reality and his sustaining reality over his world. In fact, God continues to empower people. He empowers community um, for the purpose of making himself known to a world that is blind to his reality. We are to make visible what is invisible to most of the world. We are to live supernaturally natural lives and naturally supernatural lives. And we see this played out in particular people in the Old Testament as leaders. God calls forth leaders, and he empowers them and anoints them for the purpose of making himself known. He doesn't give them power for the sake of power. He gives them power for the sake of the message which is declared through him, which is that he's a God who loves 
his people, a God who wants to redeem his world. And I think that Moses becomes a picture of that. But I love in Exodus chapter 36, verse 1, we even see the Spirit's empowerment for the purpose of creative purposes. When the temple is going to be built, in Exodus 36, 1, it says, Bezalel and Ohilab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Here you see both the blending of the Spirit as creator and the Spirit as one who empowers. Uh, he, he gives creativity as he empowers. But once again, this isn't just a force coming upon these people, but it's the very presence of God teaching, instructing, illuminating, and then actually infusing them with the act of power to accomplish. Numbers chapter 11, verse 25, remember when Moses becomes overwhelmed by the task of leading all of these people, and he's like, I can't do it alone. And it says, And the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him. This is so interesting. And put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So one component of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is something that we see in the Old Testament, but that is desperately needed in the church today. Do you guys recognize that without the power of the Holy Spirit, our witness is dead before it even leaves our lips? That without the power, empowerment, the presence of the Spirit, there is no guarantee that we've been born again. For the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives assures us that we belong to God. If he's the Spirit of communion, if he's the spirit of creativity, if he is the spirit of empowerment and anointing, that really all that means, all of those things mean that he's the God who is present in the lives of his children. And without his presence, we're a dead church. Without his empowerment, we have no ability to witness to him. So these are realities that we see in the Old Testament. But one area I want to talk about in regards to his empowerment and bringing us back to the metaphor of the, of, of the Ruach of God as the wind of God is that speaking of the Spirit of the Lord, the Old Testament writers significantly retain the emphasis upon God's violent invasion from outside our experience. Daniel trembles under, the, under the, the, the presence of the Spirit. The children of Israel, when they rebuild the wall, they sense the presence of God and fall down weeping. There's, a, there's, an, there's an infusing, not only of empowerment, but it comes often violently into the lives of believers. And what this means is that one of the reasons I think the church lacks the power of the Spirit is directly connected to our desire to domesticate the Spirit. But the Spirit is sovereign, and His freedom is a freedom to come into our lives in ways that we did not expect it, in ways that we often are not comfortable with. And His desire is that, are you willing to be a conduit? And I'm not talking about being a conduit for, for, for craziness, but I am talking about being a conduit for something that's risky, the Spirit bringing us into a place where we're so yielded that he's able to speak the message that he wants to speak without our resistance. Now, one of the reasons I am doing this very series is because Portland is literally, in my opinion, after traveling as extensively as I have and even having spoken in as many different cities as I have, we are probably the most self-conscious city I've ever been to. 
I've ever, I've ever been a part of. It's a city that is incredibly aware of its own coolness, incredibly aware of its, of, of its own progressiveness. It's a city that prides itself in how far ahead it is. There's a, there is an arrogance in our city that I don't even experience in New York. And it's weird because it's like an undercurrent. We're spiritually open. We're progressive. We're the greenest city. We ride bikes here. We're, like, we're freaked out about bad air in Portland. I'm like, I, I had a conversation with a woman not that long ago. I started crying when I, when I started laughing when she told me that the air was bad here. I'm like, have you been to India? I, I am positive it's just not as bad here. You don't understand. Like, it's like this, this sort of spirit of like hyper, we're so hyper aware. And we're hyper aware of how we look and how we dress. And it plays itself out, you guys, in the community of faith, where the progressiveness of our city makes us very self-conscious about our message because our message is not popular. Because sexuality is turned upside down on its head in our city. Because materialism is turned upside down on its head in this city. Because we live in a city that promotes itself as being enlightened. And enlightenment, it means the freedom from the tyranny of some sort of moral code that is as archaic as Christianity. And we buy into that lie, because it is a lie, because we're also the most depressed city in the U.S., with the highest use of medication to help us with our anxieties and fears and overwhelming isolations that we feel that is brought on by our individualistic progressive ways. And I think all of it hinders the Spirit's ability to work freely. Because to give the Spirit the freedom to work freely means that we have to risk our own egos. And we're not, we're, we're, we're not even thinking in terms of, I might die for my faith. We're thinking in terms of, oh, I felt this prompting that I should talk to this person at my work about Jesus because they seem really broken about their marriage that's falling apart. Oh, they probably won't respond well to that. And they're not even really your friend. So you're like, it's not like you're going to lose a friend. You're just worried that you might lose a component of your own ego. I understand it because the pressures are great. It plays out in my life as well. The fear of man is a snare, and the Spirit of God needs the freedom, the sovereign freedom to invade our lives as he sees fit. The question is, is will we be vehicles, vessels for God's Spirit to come in and to convict us where we need to be convicted, to bring about a repentance that will be necessary for a revival, to actually bring about empowerment in where we become vehicles for his glory rather than walking around like closet Christians embarrassed by this thing that we call Jesus. The Spirit infuses us with boldness. He cannot be domesticated. He's the wind, and we have no idea from which direction he blows. And I promise you, if he will not find available vehicles here, he will do it somewhere else. Because nothing can stop the plans of God for his creation, but you can stop the plans of God for you personally. I don't know how that works. It's a paradox. I'm not talking out of both sides of my mouth. It's one of those mysteries that we find in Scripture. The certain limited freedom that we have seems to be a freedom to actually grieve the Spirit's ability to work powerfully through our lives. The Spirit's empowerment and anointing in the Old Testament is just as necessary today as it was then. The Spirit comes violently. Think about how in the book of Judges, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson, it says that the Spirit of the Lord 
rushed upon him. There was like, and you know what's so, so encouraging to me about the Spirit's empowerment of believers' lives, especially in the Old Testament, are these people perfect? Was Samson an awesome guy? No. He's like hanging out on the borders of Timnah. He's already, he's like, that's what we call a fringe Christian, okay? That's the guy. It's like, how far can I take it before I actually sin? That's what Samson's whole life, that's Portland, okay? It's like, how, like how buzzed can I be before I'm drunk? These are the kinds of stupid questions that, that Christians ask in urban cores. So, so Samson, we can relate, but Samson still became a vehicle for God's glory. And what happens when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him? He tears apart a lion to pieces. And that's exactly what you'll be able to do. <laughs> Someone stands up right now and just picks up the whole row of chairs. Ah! See? Yieldedness. That's yieldedness. <laughs> I think the purpose of the story is that the Spirit has the freedom to work how he wants to work. And the question is, is are we yielded to him in a way that he can work powerfully? Samson actually ends up losing that empowerment when he, when he takes his life, his desires, the desires of the flesh actually override his willingness to maintain his vows to the Lord. But I think that the hand of God, one of the key things that we see about those who are empowered by the Spirit, the hand of God is upon them, overwhelming them. But it was also a hand that actually cared for them and through them wrote a message that was to be given, which brings me to the prophetic spirit. For the spirit doesn't simply empower us, but the spirit actually speaks through us a very particular message. And the message is the person of Christ. But the prophetic spirit in the Old Testament is, is something that is powerful. The God who is beyond us, the God who invades our world, does not do so, as Michael Green puts it, in order to terrify, but to communicate. The wind of the Spirit of the Lord is indeed power, but it is morally defined power designed to communicate the will of God and bring his creation into conformity with it. And that is why there is a frequent leak in the Bible between the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord. The Spirit of the Lord in its vastness, the sustaining Ruach of God, is directly connected with the particularity of the Word of the Lord, the specific message that he has for his creation, the specific message of redemption. I always say that the narrowness of our message is what opens us up to the vastness of our God. And I think that there's a beautiful um, symmetry between the Spirit of the Lord and the Word of the Lord uh, that often gets overlooked or, or um, separated. We cannot understand the Scripture, the Word of God, unless we have the very one who authored the Scriptures through human vessels, uh, the Holy Spirit teaching us and instructing us. We always think of dual authorship. Each book reflects the personality of the person writing, but it's the person writing under the influence or the inspiration of the Spirit. It's exactly what First, uh, Second Peter says in chapter 1, verse 21, around the whole reality of prophecy. Now, we think of prophecy, before I read that verse, we think of prophecy generally uh, wrongly. Uh, we have a misunderstanding of prophecy when we try to determine that prophecy is about predicting the future. Prophecy is not about having the ability to see what's coming next. Prophecy is the ability to become 
a conduit for the very word of God. And that can be a word for the moment, a word for the future, or even a communication about what has occurred in the past. The key is that it's the person that is completely under the control of the spirit of God by which God himself can communicate through that person. And in what um, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I love that. That they were the yielded conduits. What turned a man into a prophet was not eloquence, but vision. Not getting the message across, but getting the message. I think that's an important distinction. Uh, prophecy is essentially the act of recognition by which one sees the significance of an event as a revelation which must be passed on. One of the places we see prophecy being played out in the Old Testament so beautifully is actually 2 Samuel 23, verses 1 and 2. Um, David, the last words of David, he says this, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The Spirit, the Ruach of God, the very presence of God speaks by me and places his word upon my tongue. Think about the prophet Jeremiah. God's word was in my, was in my heart, shut up in my bones like a fire. I tried to hold it back, but could not. That is the ultimate passage around the reality of prophecy. So ultimate, I have it tattooed on my chest. Uh, not because I think it's sexy, but because I need to be reminded that I have no right to withhold the word of God. When it comes to me, I must become a conduit by which it speaks forth. And there are times, I don't know about you guys, when I think of the prophetic word, this is why Paul, why did Paul say, I wish all of you had the gift of prophecy? We're going to consider the gifts of the Spirit in a few weeks. Why did Paul say that? The reason that Paul said, I wish all of you uh, we're probably, he, didn't, he wasn't saying, I wish all of you could see the future. What he was saying is that I wish all of you were so yielded to the Spirit of God that God himself is able to communicate through you. Of course, he would say, desire the gift of prophecy above other gifts. Because to be a prophet is to be one that's so yielded to the very presence of God that God himself is able to communicate through us. His word for his people. It's the deepest desire of any preacher any honest preacher, it should not be our primary desire to, exp our primary focus, the prophetic focus is never upon, I need to make sure the people get it. The primary focus of the prophet is, I just can't rest until I speak it, regardless of whether they get it or not. It's very different. It's different than the, than the gift of teaching. So I, I uh, believe that that the spirit of prophecy is available to all believers when they're fully yielded because it's not something that we have to wield for ourselves. I just think that we should all be available to the spirit that he might speak the truth of God through us as a community of faith, that we might be a true witness to the reality of Jesus. And how do we know if, if it's truly from God? Well, does it point people to Christ? There's this new movement amongst uh, within uh, some charismatic movements that prophecy should always be positive. That, that, prophet, that there's prophet classes, prophecy classes. 
uh, where it's, they teach you how to speak words basically of encouragement. And I think that, that that is a false understanding of the scriptural vision of prophecy. In fact, the Old Testament prophets almost never had anything awesome to say. <laughs> I mean, they did, but it always came after long, long bouts of really scary stuff. And, it, and they weren't stoked to share it either. And they always put their lives in danger. Often the prophet, remember what it says in Hebrews, that these prophets were sawn in half, that they were fed to wild animals, that the people, the sign of, of real prophecy in the scriptures often ended in the prophet being killed, not people being, oh man, that guy was so nice. That's not, that's not the key. And so I just think it's weird that we have these unbiblical models being being portrayed. When Paul says everyone should desire prophecy, it doesn't mean we should create classes on how to say nice things to people. God told me to tell you that you're super handsome. That's probably not the spirit of prophecy happening. I have had someone come up to me and say, hey, the Lord gave me a word for you today. I don't do this. And I'll be like, I was like, oh no, here we go. And, and I, I thought they were going to, I've had people do this. This is two different kinds of prophecy that's been given to me. And I think one was directly from the Lord and the other one, I don't know because I couldn't make sense of it. The one that couldn't make sense, I was like, while you're preaching, I saw purple and there was like waves behind you. And then there was like a sea, but it was kind of people, but it wasn't. And then it turned like a few, and I'm like, Oregon State Fair. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> That's, <laughs> you just gave me an oracle and I don't use the word oracle. <laughs> so that was spectral. And I told my son to stay away from that. But another guy came to me and said, hey, the Lord gave me a word for you. And I, I don't know what it means, but this is what he gave me. And, and when, when Elijah was discouraged and he felt like he was the only prophet left, God spoke to him and said, there are still, still uh, 5,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He wanted me to share that verse with you. Does that mean anything? And I was like, unfortunately, it does. And I had to walk away. And the very thing that he shared with me was it was when I was working as an associate pastor at a church, and I was frustrated that I wasn't the lead guy, and I was feeling like I was the only guy who was really, you know, sticking to the truth, and that there was, that there was straying from orthodoxy, and I was getting frustrated and feeling like I was underused. And, and God used this guy, I don't even know his name, who came up to me and shared a verse with me to remind me that I needed to humble myself, that there were plenty of people that loved Jesus in the community I was a part of, and I was not the exalted anointed one, and I needed to chill out and take a chill pill. And, I was, and, and, it was, and he shared it with me humbly. It was kindly. It wasn't, it wasn't harsh. I had another girl come up to me uh, not that long ago who actually did speak something into the future that was true for me, and she said, God gave me a vision for you while you're preaching that there are some sins that you struggled with when you were young that are gonna rear their ugly head um, in the next year. And I'm like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> I'm like, well, I'm like, what will that be? Will I be terrified over not staying on top of the newest fashion trend? I was trying to think of all the things that I was haunted by as a kid. I'm like, will I do acid again? <laughs> And so I did. I did acid. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it was a bad trip, and I wish I'd never done it. No, that's not what happened. 
actually what, what she was speaking to, what I realized later she was speaking to is there, there was this, I reached that moment where I realized that my music was a secondary calling in my life right now. And there was a grasping at it where I became obsessed with making that the focus. And it, and it really distracted me from Door of Hope for a while. And the, the Lord showed me that the words that this woman spoke were, were from the Lord. And so I just, my, my thing, my, my point is, is that this invading force of the Spirit, both these people that gave me prophecy that was, I consider to be true, neither of them were comfortable with being conduits, but they were obedient to the call. They were willing to put their own egos on the line to speak something that didn't even make sense to them personally, but they were so yielded to the Spirit that they could not rest until they spoke it. It was word directly from God through another human instrument into my life that actually impacted me, that helped me and reminded me and actually straightened my path. One of the great 20th century prophets actually was A.W. Tozer, who, who was a guy that spoke, he spoke a hard word to the church and, and often was not popular for the word. His church never exploded like some of the churches did. He had a large church, but, it was a, but he was a guy that was much more respected by other pastors than he was uh, as a magnet to the masses. And I think that these are the questions that we have to recognize today that makes, uh, I think, what makes uh, Christians today nervous uh, and anxious is that they are too busy worried about the effectiveness of their message rather than being a conduit for the message regardless of whether people understand it, whether they get it, or whether they respond to it. Remember what I said? We're witnesses. We're not lawyers. Uh, and so it's not that we shouldn't try to be clear. I'm just saying that we need to be yielded to the Spirit. We need to be like Ezekiel when he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and I will speak with you. The Notice the violence of the Spirit here. And he spoke to me. The Spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Not a fun message to deliver. Uh, and there it is. It's not the ecstasy that marks prophecy, but it is meeting with God so that God can speak through the prophet. And what we need to recognize is that there's a lot being declared in the name of prophecy today that I think is more in line with what Ezekiel said and what God says to Ezekiel in 13.3, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. Our church desperately needs the spirit of prophecy. And that is that we need to be a people that have a vision from God and declare with boldness what we have seen. And finally, I wanna just talk with you with one final strand that comes through that prophetic reality of the spirit. And that is the promise that comes through the prophecy of the spirit. It's the coming spirit that comes first through the, through the Messiah, Jesus. It's the reality that, that the spirit declares um, through the prophet Isaiah in, in chapter 11, verse 2, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That here we have the prophecy that there is going to be one who comes that gives us the full example. He will not be one who is, who is, is used by the spirit but still blemished by sin so that, 
so that his memory is a mixed bag, like, like David or like, the, like Moses, who wasn't even allowed to enter into the promised land. But there would be one who comes who actually lives sinlessly and through his sinlessness will give us the full picture of what the spirit-filled life looks like. This, in the Old Testament, already predicted that the, the Messiah is coming. One of the things that Tim helped me see, and, and the staff, and many of you, was the clear arc within the narrative of Scripture that continually points, beginning in Genesis all the way through, that Jesus is coming, that the, the messianic hope and promise is found in the beginning of Genesis, but the, the prophets fully filled out this message in a way uh, that that led to um, a people that were waiting patiently and fervently for this, for this coming Messiah. Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. And I, I think that one of the most powerful things about Jesus is that we often think that when the world looked at Jesus, what they saw was God in the flesh, but that's not what they saw. For God is spirit and no man has seen God. What they saw was man as God intended man to be, one who was fully yielded to the spirit of God. They saw the spirit-filled life played out and everything that Jesus did pointed people to the Father and it was done, and it was, it was, it was done in a way that, that, that it stirred up the people. It created a fear of the Lord. They saw signs and wonders that went along with his powerful teachings that all pointed to the reality. And once again, you want to talk about the message is the medium and the medium is the message that Jesus himself was the message of God and he himself became the medium by which the redemption of the world would happen and the fullness of the spirit would come. And that is promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus gives us the picture. But remember, it is through his death and through through his becoming the sin bearer of the world, the brokenness that hides the, the presence of God from our eyes was actually dealt with once and for all through the death of Jesus upon the cross. The gospel tells us that, that Jesus Christ himself lived the life that we could not live, the spirit-filled life. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, that through his death and through his resurrection, that the stamp, they, they say that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that we today are the fulfillment of the gospel. And the way that we are the fulfillment of the gospel is that we have received that spirit because the Old Testament not only looks forward to the Messiah, but what would come out of the Messiah in that final covenant. And I want to close with this verse. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put, I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Joel chapter two, verse 28, the same thing. I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters shall prophesy and your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. These are realities, promises that come through the Old Testament that point us to the person of Christ and his complete work. And you and I today are the evidence of the fulfillment of the, the promise of the Spirit in the Old Testament, this creative spirit, the empowering spirit, the prophetic spirit is alive and he is active in his church today, even different and more powerfully than in the Old Testament because the sinless Christ covers us because we are saints in him. And as we yield to the Spirit, the Spirit brings us again and again to the cross. 
And so our prayer each and every day should be the prayer of David in Psalm 51, verses 10 and 11, one of the only two times that the actual phrase Holy Spirit appears in the Old Testament. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Amen.